Let's go to the Father in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we're so blessed just to be in your presence, God. What a what a privilege. What an honor. What an impacting thing that it is. I'm so grateful, God. So grateful. Pray now, Lord, as we open your word. We look to the truths of Scripture that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand and to apply what it is your Word says and what it teaches us and how we should respond to that. Pray, God, that you would give us humble hearts today. We see in your Word that it's the humble that are blessed. By your word. So give us humility today as we come before you. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, what I'm about to say first might come as a shock to some of you, maybe not to some of those who know me well, but I was not a good student. <laughs> In high school, I was a bad student. By the time I got to college, I got, I got good at being a bad student, though. <clears throat> and so, so that kind of looked like this. On the first day of, of class, when you, you go to college, they give you your, your syllabus. All the teachers hand out the syllabi. Brother Larry knows what I'm talking about. I'm glad I wasn't in your class. We can still be friends today. <laughs> But I would go and I would get that syllabus and I'd look over that thing and I'd say, okay, where's the attendance policy? All right, I can miss, I can miss X amount of days. Okay, well, what, days are, what days are the tests on? Okay, got to be here those days. All right, and that was, that was kind of how I operated. I'd, I'd miss that many days and I'd, I'd try my best to get there for those tests. And it, it didn't go very well. I can now check some college on applications that I fill out. I do have a seminary degree, but as far as my college, it didn't. So this is not what you should do. This is what you should not do. But I had, I had one professor that, that would take things even a, a step further. I loved this guy. I took his class twice, passed it both times. But in his syllabus, he, he didn't have an attendance policy. He said, hey, you're grown-ups. You, you don't want to come to class? Don't come to class. You're probably going to fail if you don't show up. And then he would have his test days, but he also had the, the review days. So he, he said, okay, you can come whenever you want. There's going to be a review day on this day before all the exams. So I had those days marked, and that was the, the only day I came was on those review test days. And he had me figured out. It wasn't, it wasn't a mystery. But I would come, and even as he would give the review, we'd go through the, the you know, fill-in-the-blank type stuff. This would be on multiple choice, different things. But he always had this really big, hard essay question. And he would say, you know, you can get all the others right, but if you miss, if you miss this essay question, you're, you're going you're gonna to fail. So I would just put everything else aside. I would just go find out that essay question, and, man, I would just hit that thing hard. And I, and I usually did pretty good because I would study that question, and I, and I learned, like, as we, as we progressed in his class, that everything else kind of flowed out of that. Like, he kind of knew what he was doing. Okay, if you study this question, you're also going to be studying everything else you need to know for for the rest of his stuff. So I would go and I would just bank, okay, if I get this essay question right, I know I'm good. That's all, that's all I got to worry about. And then I found I would start to get some of the other questions right, right as well. <clears throat> but there's a question that we have today in Scripture that we're going to see that, that Jesus asks. 
And I tell that story because there's kind of the same situation. This is a question that, that we can't afford to miss. There's, a, there's other things that, that, that we can get, get wrong or maybe be to the left or to the right on, but this is a question that we, that we can't afford to miss. And the idea that's going to be brought out in Scripture, or the, or the main point that's going to come from all of this, we're going to see that, that the, earthly, the earthly role of Jesus as, as the son of David is transcended by his eternal role as the son of God. And what I want us to take from this, what I want us to, to be able to see, and I think this is what the, the main thrust of the passage that Jesus is trying to teach us, is that he didn't come... Here, he didn't take on flesh and come into this world just to invite us into a worldly kingdom and then provide us with, with temporary fixes for our, our wants and things like this. He came to invite us into an eternal kingdom that he is building and address our, our deeper, greater needs that we have for eternity. So he's a, a heavenly Messiah that's come. And he's unexpected. What was expected was this, this earthly king, this son of David. And we're going to see that his role transcends that. But I don't want us to, to miss, kind of as I said to, to the kids, I don't want us to be like the people were then and be so fixated on, on the wrong idea of what's to come that we miss the real thing when it comes and what God really has in store for us. So as we, as we work through this passage, it's short, but there, there's four movements in this text, four major movements that will lead us to, to the correct conclusion that Jesus is, is the Son of God, which is what he's trying to teach at this point in the, in the temple. So if you remember last week, we, we kind of went back to, to chapter 11, and we started with his triumphal entry, and we kind of built the scene to, to where he's at now, and he went through this, this gauntlet of questions, his authority being challenged, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders, the Herodians, the Sadducees, they're just you know, throwing everything that they got at him to, to challenge his authority. And they're asking questions regarding where did his authority come from. But they, they've been asking the, the wrong questions. And, and it's when Jesus kind of steps up now in this moment, he says, this is, this is the question you should be asking. This is what you should be concerned with. Not my authority or where that, that came from, but who I am. Where did I come from? Because what you'll see is his authority comes out of who he is. It's attached to his identity, so he's trying to, to pull that out. So he, he's in the temple, which is normally the, the teaching place for, for the scribes and the, and the ones that he has dealt with. And so it said at, at the end of that last passage that we looked at in Mark that no one dared ask him, any more questions. So Jesus has kind of come in and he, he's taken over the classroom the, and, and he's the one asking, asking the questions now at this point. So we're going to be in Mark. We're still in Mark chapter 12 and we're looking at that passage 35 through, through 37. If you've got your place there, I would ask that you stand with me as we, as we read God's word this morning. And the word of the Lord reads, and as Jesus taught in the temple... He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Thank you. You may be seated. So the first, the first movement that, that we see, the first thing that's taking place here, is Jesus is challenging the scribes' teaching of the Christ to come. He's, he's came in and he's posed this question, 
that challenges their authority, it challenges their legitimacy to, to teach, they're kind of questioning to the crowd. There's a, there's, a, there's a great crowd, a great mass of people that's in there, and he's questioning them in front of this crowd, are they really the experts? Are they really teaching you the right thing? Or is what they are teaching really what, what Scripture says? And his point here in this, in this first verse, when he asked that question, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? It's not to say that Jesus isn't the son of David. He is, in fact, the son of David. And the Jews had excellent lineage records, and they would have been able to go back and trace that and pinpoint it. We can look at Matthew chapter 1, and we can even now see the lineage all the way back and how that, that traces um, Jesus through, through David's, or being David's heir and up to, to where he's born into the world. But that's not, not the point that he's trying to make. The point that he's trying to make is that he's also more than that. That he's not just the son of David. He is also the Lord of David. He is more than just that. So that Jesus poses that in the form of a question. How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? So as he's questioning their authority, he, he's, he's sort of poking holes in what those people had believed at that point and what the scribes had been teaching. So what, what he's doing is he's sort of publicly tearing up the foundation that, that had been laid at this point. The scribes had come through as, as the supposed experts on, on the teaching of the law and the prophets, and so they've built this foundation that's faulty, and it's given the people faulty expectations of the Messiah to come, as well as themselves. And so he's publicly breaking that down, and he's tearing that up, and he's, he's trying to remove this faulty thinking that they have about the Messiah to come. And he's doing that by first starting at, at ground level, laying that, laying that foundation. Jesus is he's, he's the cornerstone of, of Christianity, right? He's what we build everything else upon. If he's not that foundation, everything else that's, that, that builds upon that is, is going to sway, it's going to crumble, it's going to lean, it's eventually going to fall. We see uh, Paul deals with this with the, with the church in, in Corinth. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.10.11 says this, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus, and, and, and like mind, is saying, okay, you've got, you've got teachings from this group, you've got teachings from that group, let me clear this out, lay the proper foundation that it's all about me. The only foundation that we can build upon is that Jesus Christ is God's Son. That, that's the cornerstone for our faith and our belief. If we don't get that right, if we don't understand that Jesus is who He says He is, nothing else that we can build upon that's going to stand. As Paul teaches there, not Paul, not Apollos, we can't follow any other man but Jesus and have our right foundation. So there, there is a point of application that, that we can bring um, out of that even, even today to ask ourselves at this point is, are we building our life on that foundation? Have we laid Jesus Christ as the cornerstone to, to our belief system, to what we believe uh, in our faith and what we believe about the Bible? Is it all resting on Jesus or is it sort of like these scribes and is it kind of... Still resting on what we can, what we can do, not the perfect work of Christ and what He's done, but the things that we think that we can somehow do to to please Him. Could we be doing that? Are, are we building our own foundation and just sort of adding Jesus on to that? 
And that sort of was what was going on there. So Jesus is, is setting this ground foundation here, making sure that they get this thing right, this proper understanding of who he is. And so he's asked this question. He's, he's got their mind thinking a little bit, wondering, questioning, is, am, I, am I going the right way with this? And then we see the second movement, and that's this, that Jesus points them now to Scripture to show their misunderstanding of the Christ. 1236, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord. So what he's doing here is he's showing, he's showing us a lot. There's actually a lot in this. That Scripture carries, carries the weight of God's Word, of His spoken Word. It carries that, that same weight. So what we're, what we're seeing here, in essence, is the Holy Spirit testifying right against the scribes and he's testifying in favor of, of Jesus and what what they're being taught and what he's what he's teaching so he's using scripture as the, as the crux there not not necessarily hey this is this is me and this is something that Jesus did a lot he pointed back to the old testament to to teach himself so all all scripture paul says all scriptures is god breathed and it all points to Jesus if we remember on the, the road to Emos, when, when Jesus comes after, after he's been resurrected and he walks upon these two unsuspecting disciples, Cleopas and, and an unnamed guy, and he kind of asks them, you know, what's going on? And they're like, oh, how do you not know? And he said, well, actually, I do know. And he starts with, with the Old Testament, starts with Moses, and teaches everything about himself from the Old Testament. So I, I don't want us to, to miss that little, that little nugget right there that all the Scripture points to Jesus, right? That it's even the Old Testament, that's all going to Him. And so He's even pointing that out too. We can study you know, our Bibles around, around the clock and we can remember everything that's in there, but if we don't understand that it all points to Jesus, we're, we're going to miss it. That's what, that's what they've done. They, they've read these Scriptures and they think they've got it figured out, but they're not looking at it as if it's pointing to to Christ, and so they've missed the true meaning of what this what this scripture is saying. So we've got to keep Christ in focus. So we're always going to miss the big picture. But now I want to give a, a little bit of a history lesson as best as I can on this on this Psalm 110 and kind of break down what it's saying. So we've got a full understanding of of what it says and where this confusion might have might have come from. And I'm going to read this to you. You can follow along if you would like. But Psalm 110. This is what it reads. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and it will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise forever endures. Now historically, th this was a, a psalm that was used as a song, as, as the psalms are, but it was used for like a coronation of a new king. 
when a new king was coming, was coming into power on his coronation day, they would sing this song and they would look at this as, as, as a king being placed at the right hand um, to rule, sort of to have a signaling honor and a closeness to God and a, and a legitimacy to, to rule, to have dominion and to serve with justice, which you could, you could hold that opinion. That would hold a little bit of water until the fall of the, David, the Davidic monarchy. When that fell, all of a sudden now, that, if that's the, the only meaning of that psalm, it sort, of, it sort of crumbles. So after about 586 B.C., the only right way to interpret that psalm would have been to see it as a foreshadowing of the Messiah. Not, not just the king, not just to be used as a, as a king coming into office, but as the Messiah to come. So what had been used is sort of a, a celebration song for, for coronation, for the kings, this is actually a psalm that's displaying the rights and the promises that are reserved for the Messiah, that are reserved for the Christ, the one whose kingdom will not ever fail, the one whose name is holy. It's pointing to him. So this is about Jesus as the, the Lord of David, not just the, the son of David. So he's looking and pulling out this psalm, and he's saying, listen, nowhere in there does this say... Son of David. This is a messianic psalm. This points to, to the Lord of David. So Jesus is using the weight of Scripture, the, the voice of God, the Holy Spirit, he says, who is leading David to say this, that he is the Messiah. He's the one to come. He's not just the Son of David, that he is the Son of God. Now, as I'm studying this and I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's powerful. That's the voice of God saying, okay, Jesus is my son. He is the Messiah. He is the one that I have sent to save sinners. Then I, you know, I'm kind of thinking, well, what, what if there's someone who doesn't believe that this is really God's word? Maybe you're saying, well, I don't really believe this is God's word, so this Holy Spirit testimony doesn't really mean anything to me. And I, and I can appreciate that. Maybe you don't believe the Bible is God's word, so maybe this doesn't mean anything to you. And let's just say that I, with the rest of the entirety of Christendom for the last 2,000 years, we've been duped. And, and we've got this thing wrong. And so maybe that's possible. But you, on the other hand, if you're wrong, you're standing on the edge of grave danger. And an eternity of not just living with being wrong, but eternity under God's wrath. So I ask you to, to consider this and also consider this next point in light of that. We come to this third movement. We've seen Jesus challenge their, their teaching. We've seen Jesus point them to, to Scripture that has the weight of God's Word and, and teach to point out what the historical meaning of the psalm would have been and how it's been wrongly interpreted. And so now in this third movement, Jesus is going to lead them to, to the correct understanding of who He is. And He's saying, how, how can David call Him Lord? David himself calls Him Lord, so He's kind of giving them that aha moment. Pointing back, he's saying, is this, is this really what this, what this scripture means? Is this what this psalm is talking about? He kind of pulls it out. He shows him, okay, this is, this is what's said. There's no mention of the son of David here. And he says, okay, 
how can David himself call him Lord? So how is he his son? So he's leading them. He's leading them to gain that correct understanding. So he's showing them the, the foreshadow. And what he alludes to is to sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus is testifying, and the Holy Spirit is testifying with him that he's not just the son of David, he's the son of God. And this comes back to, to, to the point of Scripture. Ask, ask yourself this. If Jesus is just this, this son of David, if he is just this, this earthly king, and he is just trying to, to round up his people, to sort of get in line, to get, to get placed on this throne, to just to teach, why would he point them to, to this? Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. He's alluding to his being exalted to the right hand of God after his crucifixion, after his resurrection. And the exact thing that he is trying to point them to, what he is getting them to believe, those words, is the very truth that is what's going to lead to his crucifixion. You don't, have to, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to turn over to Matthew 26, and I'm, I'm going to read 63 through, through 67, and it says, But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, meaning, yes, I am. That's how we would interpret that. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And they spit in his face, and they struck him, and some even slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So if this is, if this is just a man, and he's just trying to build an earthly kingdom, why would he be trying to teach them what's ultimately going to end in his death? That, that's not logical. That doesn't make sense. What is logical is that this is God's Word, this is the Son of God, and he's come to not give them words of a man seeking to build up a worldly kingdom, but the words of a Savior that came to die. To bring them into a kingdom that's unlike anything this world has ever seen and has ever known. So he's teaching this crowd that they have much greater needs than what they think, much greater concerns that they should be dealing with other than just where did my authority come from or where is this king that we think that can get things back on track and even today we have this this same kind of confusion that that we we think if we had the right president man things would just be great <clears throat> or if we just have better leadership people people would get in line our problem is is not leadership or anything else our our, our problem is what are we doing with jesus who do you think jesus is if we're not getting that right n nothing else is really going to matter earthly kings or not. And so Jesus is, 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 is bringing that out. You don't need an earthly king. You need a Messiah. You need a Savior. And He's here and He's standing in front of you. But these people had sat under this faulty teaching right, for a long time. And it's led them to have faulty expectations of this Messiah. 
They expected an earthly Messiah with an earthly agenda to look earthly and to act earthly, and here comes a heavenly Messiah with a heavenly agenda who acts heavenly and who is heavenly and is unlike anything that they've ever seen, and it's completely blowing them away. It doesn't make sense to them. But they've missed his agenda. They've missed his his purpose. Whenever Jesus was coming back into Jerusalem and it was Hosanna, Hosanna, and palm leaves and son of David, and and yes, he's he's finally here. They're thinking the kingdom of God is here and it's here today. And man, things are going to change. He's about to come in here and set up shop and we're going to finally be exalted as God's people again. It's who who we are supposed to be. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm about at all. This place is going to burn up. I'm not so much concerned with this at all. If we look over in the Gospel of John, chapter 18, about verse 33, we can shed a little bit of light on this. This again is when, when Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate. Verse 33 says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Scroll down to 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world. My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Pilate says to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, Yeah, you say that I'm a king. But for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. That's to bear witness to the truth. That's what he's here for. That's what he's here for. Jesus himself, he's the truth incarnate that has fulfilled all the Old Testament teachings that they had heard up to this point. He is the Christ, he's God in the flesh, and he is the one who has life in himself, and that's why it is he alone who can grant eternal life to the ones that believe in him. Trying to get them to see that, that he's not just the son of David that they that they wanted. He's the son of God that they so desperately needed. And that's the understanding he's leading them to. That's what he's bringing them to at this point. He's washing away this, this false idea of what they think they need. And he's showing them, look, there's a greater purpose for you. And I've come to fulfill that purpose. And it's only me that can fulfill that purpose. And this is so relevant. We, we have this exact same confusion today over our wants and our needs and, and, and what we think we should have and what we think we should follow. It's almost like now we serve a God of comfort. If we're not comfortable, if we're not content, then we're not getting what's due us. We don't know anything about suffering and, and, and hardship. We know nothing about that. But here's the problem with that life that we think that, that we want, that we want to follow comfort and we want to follow popularity and followers and friends and, and all those things that we think will, will take care of what our, our needs are. That life leads to death. The wages of sin is death. We can follow that life and we can have our comfort now and we can be taken care of here on this earth and then we can also die and go to hell when we're done with that. But that's not what Jesus is, is about. He comes with this bizarre message that, that's completely upside down to everything that the world teaches. He doesn't promise anything but salvation and a cross. That, that, that's all he brings to us. 
But he's not here to take care of what our, our wants are. He's just here, here to meet our deepest needs. Yeah, we get some of the things that, that we want. But that shouldn't be our greatest concern. But Jesus comes with this, with this message and he says, No, no, don't, that's not what you need. Don't, don't follow that. He says, Die now. Suffer now. Carry your cross now. And you can't imagine the life that's coming. Don't lose your soul in this world trying to chase what you think that you want or what you think that you need. But trust in me and who I am and I can give you things far beyond that. But understand this, death is coming for you. And if you follow that life, that's where it's going to end up. It's in the, it's in the grave. And America might be one of the worst places to live in right now as, as far as seeking stuff and things and, and, and power. None of those things can, can fix us. They can give us a temporary joy. But it can't take care of our ultimate need, which is to be saved from our sins. Now there's just one fourth and final movement in, in this text, and it's kind of subtle, but, but I want to point it out, and that's this, that Jesus inspires the crowd with his, his teaching of the true Christ. And it doesn't even, doesn't even look like much. It just says, as he's finished up in the great thong, heard him gladly. But I, th I think that's important. The great throng that, that's there, the ones that are hearing his, his teaching, that great throng, that's referring to common people. I don't even know if there's a, a common person anymore. But these were the common people. These were people that were somewhat poor. These were people that actually had to, to work to, to get by. Sort of that, that blue-collar crowd, if you will. But I think we see the truth of Jesus' teachings coming, coming to life here. You know, Jesus, Jesus taught, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is, is the kingdom of God. All through Scripture we see it's the, the humble and the contrite that are, that are blessed, and that's, that's not the fault of the Gospel. It's just that humble people will receive something greater than themselves. People who think that they're the greatest, people who are their own God, building up their own kingdom, they have a rub with that. They have a hard time submitting. But here's this great throng of people, and they're inspired. So we can gather humble people that that are aware of their emptiness, that are aware of, of their need, that aren't so high up on their own horse, are going to be blessed by, by Jesus. They're going to be blessed by that Messiah. They're going to be blessed by that Savior. And so the power of the Gospel is it's, 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 taken, it's taken root in the hearts of these, these humble people. We don't see there that, that these people are all making professions of faith or, or that kind of thing, but we we do see that there's a coming to life of this great common people who are beginning to see that their greatest needs are not worldly needs and they're, they're seeing Jesus for, for who He really is. And they're excited about that. They've never heard anybody talk like this. They've never heard anybody put the, the scribes in, in their place and show His authority over theirs. 
And they're saying, I, I, think, I think this is the Son of God. I think this guy's who he says he is, and I think he's come to save sinners. I, I think salvation might actually be for me. Not just the, the well-to-do that have sacrifices to make and all those things. So we see they're, they're blessed by this. We see them sort of coming to life. Here's the thing, that the devil is still going to try to sell us on this son of David concept. He's going to try to sell it hard. He's going to try to sell it every day. And he's going to place his symbols all around us of, of the life that he would want us to have, the life that he wants us to think God would want us to have. So we're going to see the glitz and the glam of a worldly life surrounding us, and he's going to make it look good. And he's going to say, this is what you need, and you need it right now. And you need to just get it by, by any means necessary and not worry about anybody else. Don't listen to the haters telling you you don't need this. Those people aren't looking out for you. You need to get yours. And all the people who are buying into that worldly concept are losing their souls in the process. One after another. And then the Son of God comes. Right? And He offers a life that looks so much different. It's slow, and it's rugged, and it's marked by suffering and hardships, and the, the treasures are intangible. They're laid up in heaven. And He's just got His one symbol, the cross. The place He died and bore the wrath of God so that you wouldn't trade your soul for this world, but that you would have eternal life. Earlier in, in Jesus' ministry, He basically posed this, this same question to His disciples. And it, and it looked like this. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? To which Peter replies, You're the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. He said, Peter, you're blessed. Because the flesh didn't reveal this to you. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. So what, what you choose to do with this question will determine everything about your life from this point forward. How you live in the here and now, how you spend your time on earth, what you're going to go after, who you're going to love, how you're going to treat people. And it's going to determine your eternity after that. How are you going to spend the rest of your life? Instead of, I'm wrong. Oh well, I've had a really good life. But if you're wrong, your eternity swings in the balance and the evidence is not in your favor. So listen, there's a, there's a lot of questions, right, that we can that we can miss, that we can afford to to get wrong. And we can still be all right. We can still get by. But the, but this question, who who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Who am I? This is the one question that that we can't afford to miss. Jesus is, is so much more than, 
than just the son of David that he is and who he was thought to be. But he is he's the son of the living God. He's the only one that can save us. He's the redeemer. He's the savior. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he is your only chance at forgiveness of sins. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, where would we be without your love for us? You left us your word that points us to you. God, you sent us our son, your son, to bring us back to you. You knew what was going to happen here. You know the wickedness of our hearts. You know the things that we go after. You made sure that we had a Savior. God, help us to see that. Help us to see that, Lord. In Christ's name.